Hello, I'm Dr. Farah White. And I'm Dr. Grant Brenner. We're psychiatrists and therapists in private practice in New York. We started this podcast in 2019 to draw attention to a phenomenon called the doorknob comment. Doorknob comments are important things we all say from time to time, just as we're leaving the office, sometimes literally hand on the doorknob. Doorknob comments happen not only during therapy, but also in everyday life. The point is that sometimes we aren't sure how to express the deeply meaningful things we're feeling, thinking, and experiencing. Maybe we're afraid to bring certain things out into the open, or are on the fence about wanting to discuss them. Sometimes we know we've got something we're unsure about sharing and are keeping it to ourselves, and sometimes we surprise ourselves by what comes out. Today, Grant and I discuss the terrible toll that mental health stigma takes on not only those in direct need, but all of us as a society. Spurred by current events, we cover a lot of territory in looking at how we make sense of and respond to those in need. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So Grant, how are you today? I can't complain. How are you today? I'm doing okay. I wanted to just take a few minutes to talk about know, a lot of the mental health stuff that's been going on in the news and sort of how, you know, we've all kind of come through the crisis of the pandemic and it really feels like we're almost in a different world or it feels that way to me. But there have been some, some big changes around the city and like most recently the mayor's office put out some information of, you know, about how they're going to treat the problem of the homeless and, and mentally ill on the streets. And there's been like a very swift and intense reaction from people. We're talking about New York City, right? New York City. Yeah. They're basically going to try to bring people that are, that appear to be mentally ill into hospitals for treatment. And you know, it's nothing that has been, that's really new to me, except that I think for whatever reason, this got a lot of press and, um, it seems to have like touched a nerve in the city's like main communities. Yeah. We're talking about New York city where, where we're based and we're talking about mayor Eric Adams, who is also a former police officer with a lot of subway experience. And if you've been to New York or if you live in New York, you know that among other areas, the subway has a lot of people who are unhoused uh, and also who appear that they may be um, suffering from mental illness or, and or addictions uh, and other problems. And so this is something, mm -hmm. you know, we live with everywhere, really everywhere in the world. Um, I've traveled in other countries where the level of mental illness, poverty, uh, disease that is unaddressed is, it's so massive that, you know, absent charity groups or social, social justice or social responsibility oriented or governmental groups that are working on it, by and large, we learn to stop paying attention, even, even if it's really right in front of us. Uh, or if we do, a lot of times, for me anyway, there's a feeling of, gee, I wish there was something I could do. Uh, you know, I do not-for-profit work, but when you pass another human being, they're asking you for help, and there's 
no sort of obvious thing to do. You know, you can give them some money, you could buy them some food, but it's evident that there's a problem that isn't being addressed. And I think though it hasn't been a big part of the dialogue coming from the mayor's office, it is part of the reaction that part of the, the root cause here is that there is not adequate mental health treatment. And a couple of decades ago, there was something called deinstitutionalization, where, where a lot of people who essentially lived within mental health in, institutions, hospitals, were released onto the street without adequate services available. And, you know, in the decades since that time, we still don't have adequate mental health services. The frightening part, though, is that if there's kind of carte blanche to just take people and put them in the psych ER or hospitalize them, there's a risk that people who, um, who, who don't need those types of services will be mandated against their will. There's a concern about human rights violation. Uh, and then how do you know, you know, who needs mental health treatment just from looking at them? Right. Well, I know you're sort of asking rhetorically, but I think there are some hallmarks of poor mental health that you can see um, in people who are undomiciled and even people who might be, have, you know, more financial resources. I think we should talk a little bit about the history of, you know, when you said deinstitutionalization, you know, psychiatry has kind of a dark past where um, we used to sort of strip patients of their rights, keep them in the hospital much longer than they needed to be there, force them to take medications that maybe they didn't want to take. And so overall, I think patients having the right to refuse medicine or if they're generally harmless, you know, they don't need to be in the hospital. I think that's a good thing overall, but I think how it plays out is, and and maybe people don't realize this. I, I know that you and I probably do, but there are a lot of people that want to be in the hospital, um, to get treatment and really need to be in the hospital for their own safety who have no place to be. So a lot of the beds, um, the psychiatric units uh, were converted over to medical beds during COVID. And, you know, for a city of however many million, what is it, seven, eight million people, there are not a lot of beds for the psychiatrically ill. And it's a problem because it means that people come in and out of the hospital more um, and they get discharged before they're maybe fully ready to be discharged um, in many cases. But there are people that end up in the hospital that, on the other hand, you know, advocate for their own release, right? And they call their mental hygiene lawyer and try to negotiate getting out because they don't want to be there. Right. So just to give some background, there's different ethical principles at play. Yeah. And it's true that sometimes people who aren't able to make their own decisions as, as determined by properly trained psychiatrists, often a forensic psychiatrist, often in, in a mental health court can be mandated to treatment, both inpatient and outpatient. If they meet criteria, which are fairly stringent Mm -hmm. of not being able to take care of themselves or if they're a risk to themselves or others. And that's not taken lightly. It's also true that, you know, physicians can temporarily commit someone to the hospital 
for three days if if it's a one one physician or up to two weeks if it's two physicians based on mental health examination. Mm-hmm. But the, the ethical principles here, you know, let's see if I can remember them, are autonomy, like respecting the individual's rights and abilities to make decisions if they have the competence and capacity to do that. Uh, beneficence, the idea that we're going to try to help people, can and should help people in need. And paternalism, which is taking over people's uh, autonomy when they're not able to make decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I was reading up on this a little bit, and it's interesting you, if you think about Mayor Adams' background as as a transit police officer, uh, and if you've been in the New York subway, like we said, mm-hmm. you know, what is the story here? And you're saying there's there's not that many beds. So if everyone who looks mentally ill is taken to a hospital and evaluated for psychiatric treatment inpatient, there's definitely not going to be resources for that. Right. And you're saying there, there are some folks who don't want to be in the hospital at all mm-hmm. for psychiatry. There are other people who want to stay in the hospital because that's a preferable place for them to live, even if they don't need inpatient services. Because of the shortage of beds, the length of stay has gone down and down and down. So generally hospitals, if they admit people, they try to get them stabilized on medications and discharge them very quickly. In, in, the, in the old days, in the good old days, <laughs> or in certain types of higher end expensive facilities that often aren't covered by insurance, you can actually get intensive evaluation and psychotherapeutic services. But that is less the case in city hospitals. It tends to be more kind of like battlefield psychiatry, you know, in the sense Mm -hmm. in traditional military psychiatry, the goal would be to get people back, back into the action. And so the idea is to get people stabilized and discharge them. But then when you discharge them, it's very hard to find services. And within the first week, it's very common for people to get re-hospitalized and the risk of suicide goes up in the first week after discharge as well. And so it's, you know, it's a serious problem without any kind of quick fix. And that's part of why the reaction to this kind of mandate has been so vigorous. Basically, anyone who knows mental health immediately said, that's not going to work. Right. What, what are you doing? Right. Like, what, what's the story? Why, why, are, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. It sounds good, but, you know, it's like everyone should have the medical care they need and I'm passing a law, you know, but mm. if the resources aren't there, you're not addressing the root cause and I, th- I think you're saying part of the root cause may be stigma. Yeah, I think um, that the stigma around the mentally ill goes back many, many centuries. Um, and when we had more like either spiritual or I don't know, in like a religious society before people thought, okay, there are biological causes for, let's say, um, illnesses like schizophrenia, right? People were thought to be either dangerous or possessed by demons. And I think it's a very, very scary thing that someone can appear physically healthy, but is just not there intellectually or emotionally. Right, their ability to take care of themselves, to deal with reality, to have normal relationships. Right. Though I think there's a flip side to what you're saying historically. Uh-huh which is where before we had psychiatry and mental illness diagnosed as readily, 
people who had problems like that, whether it was psychiatric illness or developmental problems, would have a place in society quite often. Um, and mm-hmm. so the flip side of the kind of religious and spiritual explanations is the idea of uh, kind of the, the wise fool or the, the kind of holy fool where there wasn't stigma because, of course, you know, there's all different kinds of people in society. By having a diagnostic system, the, the, the benefit is that, that we can understand illness and treat people. The, the risk is that there's too much pathologizing and, and that stigma can come into play around diagnosis. And stigma can be internalized as well. There's social stigma, but there's okay. also one's own stigma, which often leads people essentially out of shame and fear to hide it when they have a problem. Mm-hmm. Though a, a lot of times, while mental illness is invisible, you you can you can see that there's a problem, and, and that's where the ambiguity comes in. Not all unusual behavior is mental illness, as I can personally attest. <laughs> Um, I think you brought up an important point, you know, that sometimes people are struggling in ways that are not visible, but that, you know, there might be consequences for getting some treatment or some help, even for disclosing what people are, you know, are going through. And it reminds me of some of the other stuff that's happened to the news recently, which is how, you know, college campuses um, and administrations respond to students who are struggling. I I think you're talking about, you know, very prestigious Yale University was in the news recently. Mm -hmm. uh, And what was reported is that when when students have depression or particularly suicidal, perhaps allegedly, um, that they are essentially um, forced to go uh, on academic leave or, or actually not even academic leave, right? They're, they're forced to dematriculate. Medical leave. I, yeah. I, if I remember yeah. correctly, I, I think it's not actually leave. They actually withdraw from being a student there. And then they can reapply mm-hmm. if they can sort of demonstrate that they're stable and able to reapply. And by and large, I think right. they, they get readmitted. But I think there was a very, very tragic case in the news of a, a, a sort of a wonderful, promising uh, young person who who ended up uh, dying by suicide during that period of time. Mm-hmm. And I think you're talking about the consequences yeah. in schools, but also in the workplace. Uh, is there discrimination against people with mental illness, which often, like physical illness, can interfere with productivity? For sure. For sure. But I also think, you know, for college students, it's very complicated. Um, The help that they want or need is not always there, even at, you know, schools that have these massive endowments. Usually the health centers and offices of accessible education and all of that um, still struggle to meet the demand. And um, for someone who's already depressed who may be very far from home, who may end up having to go back to an environment that's not supportive. It can be really awful to be sort of forced away from whatever might be a stabilizing force uh, for them. Absolutely. And then the fact that they 
have to sort of reapply in this way and what they have to demonstrate. And I think it's always very, very difficult. What people don't understand about psychiatric evaluations is that, yeah, you can get a history and you can sort of prognosticate, but what we see um, is that people are always changing and their mood might be changing and people might feel suicidal one moment and then feel very future oriented the next. So it's almost unfair for people who have been struggling with depression, which is a massive subset of our population, uh, to say, well, we need some sort of guarantee, right? Right. There's like 20 million people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what the evaluation process is from what I've read, but in general, it can feel very shaming and, you know, further ostracizing mm-hmm. and, and being, being ostracized, being expelled from your social group activates pain circuits in the brain. Right. And if you think about it from an evolutionary mm-hmm. point of view, if you get thrown out of the, the community, if you get thrown out of your tribe, you are on your own, which in a natural environment can, can be a threat to survival for sure. And so we're like so strongly wired to get worse when we're kicked out of our group. And there certainly are universities that respond to students in such need, you know, very differently. And I think one of the, one of the concerns here is, I don't, I don't know about this particular school is just our society, Western society, American society is so performance oriented. So if you, you know, have ADHD, then you're likely to get a lot of support to get treatment so you can do well academically but what is it about students with depression and elevated risk for suicide that would lead our society to push them further away, you know, maybe into a greater peril? Mm-hmm. What is it about the stigma? And is there something about the internalized stigma? You know, for example, maybe I have depression and I don't want to acknowledge it. And so when, you know, I'm, I'm imagining maybe I'm uh, a school administrator mm-hmm. and I see a student in a similar situation, because I'm denying my own needs, maybe I can't imagine that the other person also has needs. And so that interferes with my capacity for empathy. And in the absence of empathy, which is like your first tool for understanding where the other person is, you're more likely to make the wrong move. That makes me think about, you know, what's happening in New York. Like, how can we sort of reasonably and usefully respond to this crisis? CNN did a survey a month ago or so, and 90% of Americans said that they thought America was facing a mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. And I was reading up a little bit on on the New York City situation, and there was an op-ed in the New York Times on December 7th by Anthony Almohera a lieutenant paramedic with the fire department, emergency medical services, EMS, you know, he's, he's been, he's been through the ringer. He's seen everything. Um, He described quote unquote, a dystopian streetscape where his colleagues have been assaulted and even murdered by emotionally disturbed individuals that are also homeless. You may or may not know, I know you know this, but listeners may or may not know the term that police and EMS use is EDP Mm -hmm. an emotionally disturbed person. And so, you know, we all worked in the psychiatric emergency room. Some of us still do or work in the community to say oh, we have an EDP, you know, doctors love acronyms because <laughs> it saves 
a couple of seconds, but those seconds add up to days and hours over the course of the year. Mm -hmm. And this is what he wrote. I'm not opposed to taking mentally ill people in distress to the hospital. Our ambulances do this all the time, but I know it's unlikely to solve their problems. Hospitals are overwhelmed. So they sometimes try to shuffle patients to other facilities. Governor Kathy Hochul has promised 50 extra beds for New York City's psychiatric patients, five zero. <laughs> we need far more to manage these patients who would qualify for involuntary hospitalization under Mr. Adams' vague criteria. Mr. Adams says that under the new directive, this patient won't be discharged until a plan is in place to connect the person with ongoing care. But the systems responsible for this care, sheltered housing, access to outpatient psychiatric care, social workers, a path to reintegration into society are horribly inadequate. There aren't enough shelters. There aren't enough social workers. There aren't enough outpatient facilities. So people who no longer know how to care for themselves, who need their hands held through a complex process, are alone on the street once again. You know, it reminds me of working with refugees. I served in volunteer work in an Afghan refugee village last year. And the process through which someone can enter the country is incredibly complex. There's multiple organizations involved. The level of resources, the level of thoughtfulness, the level of collaboration is uh, unfathomable and, unless you actually see it yourself. Yeah, but I think um, making unilateral decisions that may put people at risk or may redistribute resources in a way, um, I, and I just think about what it's like. You know, I remember when I was in residency and it dropped below a certain temperature. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it's like then the city issues an emergency. When you were training? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's and a certain temperature where, where people start to die. Where people start to die. And if they're sleeping on the street, the police or the paramedics, you know, they are brought into the hospital for their own safety. And sometimes they would have to be on these bear huggers to kind of warm them back up. A bear hugger is like, an inflatable thing. It kind of looks like bubble wrap and it gets hooked up to a, like a heating tube and, and it blows warm air, mm -hmm. right? And they use it in surgery usually yeah. because people have trouble maintaining their body temperature with anesthesia. And also when, you know, they're open, mm -hmm. <laughs> opened up. Yeah. And, and sometimes if you're cold as a trainee, you'll, you'll kind of swipe a bear hugger and it's, it's quite, <laughs> I never did it's that. quite nice actually. <laughs> I never did that for the record. Yeah well, yeah, well, I did surgery for two years and I don't, I don't think psychiatry had access to bear huggers, but I did general surgery for a couple of years and, and we would see people who came in off the street with terrible physical injuries, you know, no question. Right. And sometimes they got treated because they were in a psychiatric hospital. Sometimes it, it wasn't very good, right. but quite often when they were in for psychiatry, you could get a lot of their basic needs treated, you know, from serious medical problems to maintenance like dental care. Yeah. Absolutely. I think people, you know, who have chronic illnesses, like let's say diabetes and a lot of um, psychiatric patients have, have been on medicines lifelong that may have caused metabolic syndrome or a whole host of other issues, right? Um, Just to be clear, some of the most effective medications for severe and persistent mental illness and even depression very commonly are antipsychotic medications, which are the, the most effective medication to add for severe depression. And they can cause uh, essentially diabetes, weight gain, increased lipids and cholesterol, yeah. and a host of other problems, which if they're not properly managed, and sometimes even if they are properly managed, 
lead in the future to increased diabetes, heart disease, uh, cerebrovascular disease, et cetera. Right. And there, I think there are other complicating issues. I think um, sm- uh, smoking uh, cigarettes is a big one. Yeah. Nicotine helps with cognition. I was having this conversation with someone who has a, a relative who has schizophrenia and there's evidence, if, if I remember correctly, that, that even the relatives of people with schizophrenia can have some impairments in working memory. Mm-hmm. And a lot of patients with schizophrenia will, will, will smoke because it may actually improve their cognitive function. Right. Um, and so they have all the associated, uh, all, all the associated screening and management that goes along with that, um, I think is just exceptionally difficult. So yeah, sometimes, um, being in the hospital means they can get their, the medical (laughs) treatment they need, their blood sugar is well controlled. It is safer. And I think what a lot of people forget is that people with severe mental illness are far more likely to be harmed by others than they are to be aggressive. So they are really the most vulnerable population, in my opinion. Right. There's some concern that this is kind of politically motivated because of increasing violence and it is perpetuating the part of the stigma uh, against people with mental illness that, you know, if we get them off the street, you'll be safer on the subway. I I think if there's a bright side, even if it's premature and ill-fated, you know, an announcement like this draws attention to the problem and motivates people to kind of go. Right all right, we actually, we do need to do something about this. This, this isn't going to work, but what would work? Yeah. Um, And then of course, right. A lot of people in practice don't work with people with these more severe problems. Um, Private therapists and psychiatrists don't typically work with people who live on the street. There's community psychiatry and outreach programs. And even some of the mental health companies that are coming up, that treat people, actually take insurance, um, can scale up and treat a lot of people. They also don't typically work with patients with severe and persistent mental illness, though there are a couple of exceptions. In significant part, there are two big reasons. One is the, the care is much more complex and, as we were saying, needs the medical coordination. And number two is the insurance is typically Medicaid if there is insurance. And the reimbursement is so low that it's very difficult to build an effective and efficient healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And so I know we're wrapping up. I'll say, you know, if you're voting, then vote for representatives who really understand the issues because a big part of the fight, and it's been going on for years, is at the level of the legislature. Until a state and federal Congress allocates funding for this, it can't even get off the ground. And I think, thankfully, the federal government now is actually trying to look at what are the drivers to start to understand the complexity and and set up resources so that groups can actually do something. Yeah. Though it's pretty early on. Yeah. I think um, you make a good point, which is that this has opened up a conversation and it's a really important conversation that we should be having and how we can sort of take care of ourselves and take care of each other um, in, in society uh, and with regards to you know, mental health. Yeah. It's important for leaders and people with um, 
with visibility who, who you know who are doing really well to to be open. Uh, so we see much more you know musicians, uh, leaders in the government, military, um, Hollywood coming out and saying you know I'm depressed or I have bipolar disorder. Even you know the royal family in England has talked about it much more openly. Mm-hmm. And there, there's actually evidence. I love, I love data, right? Mm-hmm. That when people talk openly and tell their stories, it helps. So my own story, you know, I've been quite public about that involves early um, parental loss, meaning my mother died when I was quite young, and it, 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 it wasn't that good for it wasn't that good for me. Um, and I've written about it quite a bit, and and I do that in in number one because I think, you know, I I find it helpful personally to share, but also you know, this particular thing about one in 20 people lose a child, uh, you know, before they lose a parent when they're children before the age of 18. Mm. And it's highly stigmatized. Um, and if, you know, I'll tell you from personal experience, and of course it's, you know, everyone has their own experience. I can't fully empathize, but to be a kid whose parent passed away makes it really tough to fit in in school in a lot of ways, not, not the least of which aside from any personal impact is how other people see you. And so this gets to this idea of the stigma is how other people see you. And and one of the points that Al Mohera said is, if you see a guy shadow boxing in Times Square, is he, you know, quote unquote crazy and they're going to pick him up and take him to the hospital? Or is he kind of just, you know, a little bit idiosyncratic, right? And if you live in New York, mm-hmm. I'm sure every day we see people where, where you know, who who's to say, right? Um, the other thing I want to mention is, this is sort of, um, I'll say hopeful, the Pentagon uh, recently announced within the last couple of weeks that they're removing all of the stigmatizing language from their from their mental health policies. I think that's, that's pretty important. And it's a start, you know, that um, to look at the words we use and the effects that, you know, they have on others. So. Anyway, thanks for sharing a bit about your experience and thanks for talking today. Yeah, likewise. Um, I hope you um, are able to catch up a little bit on some rest. I know you had a, uh, a tough <laughs> night with a, the more prosaic problem of raising yeah. little humans <laughs> so you can get some Zs. Um, Thank and, you. Yeah, it's been, been a pleasure speaking as always, well, almost always. Okay. All right. <laughs> thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Doorknob Comments Podcast. We appreciate your time and hope you've gained something from joining us today. Please let us know what you think. You can email us at hello at doorknobcomments.com. Find us on Instagram at doorknobcomments, on iTunes, and on our website, doorknobcomments.com. Let us know if there are any particular topics you'd like us to address. We'd love to hear from you. Remember, the Doorknob Comments Podcast is not medical advice. If you may be in need of professional assistance, please seek consultation without delay.